Welcome back, WCT fans, Water Coolians, the cool crew. Today we have a very special episode for you. We are joined by the founder of Shine the Light On clothing company, Eli Brown from Toronto, Canada. His company, Shine the Light On, uses thought-provoking designs in their clothing to spark conversation and build communities in a mission to help raise awareness for mental health. It was an absolute pleasure to be able to have a phone call with Eli and just have a just have a very productive conversation about mental health. It's something I mentioned quite a bit here on the show because it's so dang important, but the idea of having conversations about topics that may make you uncomfortable is really important because it, it helps create real change. And in the case of mental health, reducing the stigma that this is something we can't talk about. We all struggle with something, but it's just so wrong that we also feel that we can't share how we truly feel with the ones we care about around us. Something I have been trying to do in my own personal life, even on the show here, is be a lot more vulnerable with the people I care about. And trusting that the support system I have established for myself in 24 years of life will be there for me when I'm at my low points, but also be able to share my high points with them as well. I feel very lucky to have the support system I have, and I also I also feel very lucky to have this show as a platform to share with you, listeners, my vulnerabilities. This show has, outside of beginning to go to actual therapy and having the helpfulness of a third party guiding you through your emotions, this show has acted as a peaceful place for me to expand, but also question what my being is and really start to figure out that I don't need to always be the perfect version of quote-unquote Adam. Eli mentioned in our conversation, it's okay to not be okay, and you don't always have to be the hero of your story. And those are very important pieces to hold on to. But wise words aside, to the actual episode in hand, Eli and I had a solid conversation about the idea of love and heartbreak and how fish can show that love is vital to our evolution. Our second story touches on the idea of how giving adolescents the most effective way of describing their emotions can reduce mental health issues, and then finally having an in-depth and important conversation on the stigma surrounding mental health. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 26, titled Vulnerability with Eli Brown. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. All right, Eli Brown, I would like to welcome you to the show. Eli is the founder of Shine the Light On, which is a clothing company designed to raise awareness for mental health. Eli, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me today. Uh, before we get into the actual discussion, I know you are a fan of the Bachelor Bachelorettes. Yeah. Are you still doing the Mondays with the mom, the KFC bucket? Yeah, yeah, still going strong on that. It's, all, it's always entertaining. Um, it's uh they're honestly just like a good time also to spend with my mom and then have that bonding time. But the show is definitely entertaining. I do the same thing with my aunt. What are your thoughts on the Hannah B season? It's, it's always interesting. Um, it, it's been an entertaining one to watch. There's definitely been like an interesting group of guys on the show, but I mean, it's, it's entertaining reality TV. So it's no complaints on my end. As someone who is like really into like human behavior, it's so fun to just watch like people interact that way. Like, how Luke P or how Jed kind of goes about the whole situation, I think is uh, is pretty fun. It's a, it's a nice little one of those guilty pleasures that I en- definitely enjoy. Yeah, it's, it's been so entertaining this season and even all the other seasons. I mean, when you put 25, 30 people in one house who are all dating the same person, it makes it really entertaining to watch. 
<laughs> well, anyway, speaking of love, uh, let's talk about some lovesick fish. This is from CNN Europe. Lovesick fish have pessimistic outlook on life. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. One cichlid, two cichlids, three. Throughout history and across cultures, people have written songs and poems mourning lost loves. But now researchers at the University of Burgundy in France have discovered that fish also pine for their partners, a discovery that is challenging the view that only humans are able to form emotional attachments. Researchers performed a series of tests on convict cichlids, a monogamous fish native to Central America that are popular in home aquariums. 33 female cichlids were allowed to choose a male mate and then their their behavior was monitored when they were not paired with their preferred partner. Researchers found that the females who were denied their first choice adopted a more pessimistic or bleaker outlook on life when presented with a challenge. Now, Eli, you're probably asking yourself, how can a fish be pessimistic? In a series of tests, females were trained to recognize in open boxes distinguishable by their color and position in the tank. Uh, and I know a lot of people think fish don't have a long memory, but a relative of the convict cichlid, the African cichlid, is said to have a memory of 12 days. So these fish have pretty good memories. Anyways, a positive box was filled with a reward, a negative box was empty, and a third ambiguous box was presented to test their reaction before and after separation. Females who were paired with their preferred partner were quicker to investigate the ambiguous box than those who had been separated. Researchers also found the females with an optimistic outlook, uh, those still in pair with their partner, tended to invest more in reproduction by laying eggs earlier and spent more time attending to those eggs. One of the researchers, Eli, I know you're Canadian, so you may need to help me with my French name pronunciation, <laughs> Francois Xavier Deschamois Moncharmont. It's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. Stated, many psychologists decided that only humans can feel some emotion to their partner. But with this study, we have shown that that is not correct. This will question very deeply the adaptive value of such behavior. Many people consider love as a pollution to our decisions. When you are in love, you may behave a little strangely. But maybe this emotional response has some adaptive value. If it has involved independently in many species, that could prove that maybe it has some adaptive value. Eli, based on the conclusion from Francois Xavier, do you believe love has an adaptive value, meaning it provides a usefulness that can help an organism survive in an environment, or is love just a pollution of our decisions? Or is Francois Xavier completely wrong in his conclusion? So I absolutely love this article. I found it so interesting um, to see how they uh, how they did it and what why they chose this type of fish, but also why um, they chose to do it around love and their preferred mate. Um, I definitely do agree that it does play an important role in, in who we are um, because it shows that uh, the community and the people around us that we associate with have uh, you know a great benefit on how we have an outlook on life. I thought it was so interesting just to see how, how they did it and then also how the fish started to choose from different boxes based off of when they were with their preferred mate, when they weren't, and what their decision was right after they got separated from their preferred mate. Yeah, in like my research I found that because I had always thought like love was an emotion. Mm -hmm. And it turns out like the scientific community is like, nope, love is not an emotion. They consider it a I don't know if you ever heard of it, but they consider love a drive. An emotion would have to be something that you can show facial expressions for. Like if you're happy, you show a smile. If you're mad, you show a mad face. But you can't show a facial expression with love. Whereas a drive is something that you have a set goal. So like the example they used was hunger. And hunger, it's like if you're hungry, your goal is to get food. And that's your goal. So love is kind of in that similar mindset of if you're love, you have a goal of being with another person. And that's 
considered love to scientists. And I think that goes into when talking about these adaptive values, if love has an adaptive value, in my opinion, I think if we're categorizing love and hunger as drives, and obviously hunger and eating food and drinking water and stuff like that are part of a evolutionary need, I would I would reasonably say that love is an evolutionary need. Obviously, you have, you know, sex and hope that there's love in there, but there's not always love. You don't need love to reproduce. But I think love is one of those things that is a part of who we are as humans, makes up our, you know, strongest feelings, not, you know, not emotions anymore, but our strongest drive. And so I think love has a very intrinsic value in that love belongs in humanity, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it's so important that love does and is in humanity. Um, I think it's the way that we also communicate with each other, why we choose to live with other people or surround ourselves with other people and not isolate. Because I do feel like there is a constant desire from humanity to seek connection and to seek love from others and, and have that, that relationship together. Why do you think people are seeking love? I think one, it's it's. Uh, I think it's just part of our DNA. I think there is a natural desire to want to connect with others. Obviously, there's some people who may not wish to connect with others, but I think overall, humanity wants to connect with other people. I think that's even why social media has become so big because the click of a thumb, you're able to connect with millions of people around the world. And I think people are always looking for a new way to connect with others. So I, I really believe that love is part of our DNA. Are you someone who believes in the idea of soulmates? So I believe in soulmates, but I believe that you can have multiple soulmates. No, that's a, that's a good point. I heard this theory that at the start of the Big Bang, like atoms were together and going around each other. And then the Big Bang happened and those atoms separated across the universe. And the idea is that our soul soulmates are those atoms, because atoms are always trying to go back to each other, that the idea is our soulmates are always trying to you know come back to us. And I definitely agree. I think we have multiple different soulmates throughout the world, maybe even the universe. But I think those soulmates come at different times in your life. You know, it's like maybe this one person makes sense for you now, but in 20 years, they may not make sense for you. Yeah, that's a great point. I think the, why we have a lot of different soulmates is as we grow as people, we need or want different things in our lives. So the soulmate that you meet when you're 14 years old going through high school may just be perfect for you at that time, but may not be your soulmate in your later early 50s. Yeah, it was just I just watched uh, Hassan Minaj's um, comedy special Homecoming King. I don't know if you know mm -hmm. who Hassan Minaj is. He does Patriot Act, Patriot Act on Netflix. But anyways, he was talking about growing up as a Muslim in America after 9-11 and he fell in love with this white girl who ended up breaking his heart and he was like, I needed, even though that was such a negative time in my life, I needed that person to show that, you know, I'm part of America. Mm -hmm. So I definitely, yeah, I definitely agree. I think, you know, soulmates come in your life whenever they're needed in your life. Yeah, I agree. And also another thing from the article that I found super interesting was how the fish that were with their preferred partners laid their eggs quicker mm -hmm. and that they tended them more often. 
And to me, what I read into that was how almost like a relationship with parents is if you set a good standard and a good foundation of love and support and communication, it will get passed through generations. I think that's a very good point. And I think that's something that, you know, we had talked about in my last episode with Adam Hoskin about how our parents, we talked about how males are often, it's a lot tougher for males to express their emotions because their fathers didn't express their emotions and their fathers. So I think I definitely think that's true. I think if you're in a loving relationship as a parent, that will pass down to your kids and their kids and their kids and their kids and make a much more healthier environment to grow up in. Yeah, because that was so interesting to see how they chose to lay their eggs earlier and how they spent more time with them. And it's almost that that nurturing feeling or the nurturing part of their DNA that they just feel like they need to have there and how it would have been interesting in the study if the, then they actually studied the fish of the offspring of the nurtured fish in, in a sense versus the unnurtured fish. Um, because I definitely think there would be a big difference of how the love gets passed from generation to generation. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And then, yeah, yeah, just kind of from my understanding of the results shown in the study, uh, there's clearly an emotional and physical change to an individual, as we just mentioned there, or in this case, uh, when associated with the addition of love or loss. Why do you believe love comes as such a powerful driving force on our emotional and physical health? I, I feel like love is something that can completely consume somebody. And I don't think there's many things out there that, that can do that. It's, it's such a strong emotional feeling that it can drive people to do great things, but also crazy things. Um, and it's one of those things that I, I just don't think that we would ever be able to really put our thumb on it and, and explain because in, in many ways, I've seen my friends, you know, it happened to my friends or myself where I kind of look at them and it's like, it's almost like a new person after they've fallen in love. For me, kind of looking at superheroes and supervillains is like a good representation of how I kind of view love. I think love and hatred are very to opposite emotion or opposite drives now. And I think, you know, a hero has love in its life. A supervillain doesn't and they have hatred. Mm -hmm. And you kind of see how that or you kind of see how there's first off the physical difference on, you know, the hero is always shown as the big buff guy or gal or they're very prideful and in their ego. And then the supervillains are kind of always in the dark and they're kind of always, you know, hidden away from the world and trying to cheat their way to the top. And then you ha also have the emotional like, yeah, Obviously, a hero, if he's surrounded by, you know, love and happiness and family and friends, he's going to be a better or he's going to have better emotional health. Whereas a supervillain, when he's surrounded by other villains, other people who have hatred in their heart, obviously, they're going to see the world in a much different way than a hero would. Yeah, definitely. And I think love provides people with the opportunity to connect with others and to connect with the community and, and explore other things and to do fun activities and learn more about their surroundings. And I think doing all of those things makes someone happier in the long run. I definitely agree. Um, and then in your own experience, do you believe it's mentally and physically healthier to live a more pessimistic life or to live a life of optimism? So I think um, kind of looking at my life, I think there's good to have a little bit of both. I think overall, I'm saying I'm very optimistic about my life and, and, and my future. And I think it's it's a great strategy for myself and it really keeps me going and I'm fairly happy all the time and I can really keep going on things and I'm enjoying life, which is always extremely important. But I do think it's okay to be a little bit pessimistic because it kind of, you kind of look at things twice and make sure you're not jumping in things too quickly and to really analyze the situation before you, you jump into it. So I definitely think that there is a value of, of having a, both in your life, 
but I generally find uh, being a little bit more optimistic in life is, is the way that I, I've chosen to go and very happy with how my life has turned out so far. Yeah, I heard I heard from someone that, that this person was more pessimistic and they kind of said, you know, when you're optimistic, you're always looking for the greener side. You're always looking for the good in life and you end up getting disappointed a lot more. Mm -hmm. And that's why they tended to be more pessimistic because it's like if you always undershoot yourself and you're always, you know, shooting below the bar, you succeed more and you're not risking it for the biscuit, kind of. Yeah, I, 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 I see that point a little bit, but I feel like that takes out a lot of enjoyment of life. And I feel like it, in some way, almost sets you up for failure because you're always looking at something half empty. And then when you meet a new person, I always try to find the good qualities in them rather than the bad qualities in them or, or think that this person could become a good friend and open myself up to that person and be vulnerable with that person. And yes, there is the opportunity of getting hurt or getting upset, but I find that it's also a great way to create a great connection with another person. I, I definitely agree on that point. I think it's, to me personally, and it sounds like you're the same, to being more optimistic is, you know, it's a tougher route definitely because you're a lot more vulnerable and you're a lot more open with who you are but i think the rewards for it are a lot better because yeah if you invest in someone and you're like i believe in this person and they blow you out of the water you're like holy crap this is worth it yeah and even if it doesn't work out i feel like still being optimistic about the situation you're still able to come out on top on it and it's not a negative thing and then finally to our cichlids who may be dealing with heartbreak and the feelings emotions that come with a situation like that what can and should be said to ensure that process is handled in a healthy manner i don't think there is a a, a correct way of doing it some people would say you know, watching The Bachelor and eating tubs of ice cream is the correct way to handle it. I think everyone handles things differently. Um, for me personally, and I can really only speak on my personal experience about it, is realizing that heartbreak takes time to get over. Um, it's almost like losing someone or losing a big part of your life and there is a grieving process that comes with it. I find what worked best for me and what continues to work best for me is not to run away from that discomfort, but to be able to to sink into it and analyze it a little bit and work through it. Um, and I find that really helps me get through heartbreak a lot quicker. I definitely agree. I think that you know a lot of people want to, after a heartbreak, they want to go on the internet and say, how do I deal with heartbreak? Mm -hmm. And the internet will say, here's ABC, but that person may need EFZ. And yeah. it's not that process isn't going to fit with what they need. So yeah, I think it's good to, you know, I've been through heartbreak in my life. And I think the best thing to do is yeah, just really sit with yourself and self assess, figure out, you know, why am I feeling this way? What were the emotions and feelings I had in that relationship? Because it is, I, that's very true. I think a lot of people forget when you break up with someone, you're not only breaking up with someone that you have strong feelings for but you're also breaking up with your best friend and it's like boom the next day you can't talk to that person and that's really tough because that was the person that you kind of had shared your feelings with you know these deep emotions that you have and they were the person that you always went to if you felt bad but then you break up and you can't go to that person anymore so i think it's smart if there was a abc solution to heartbreak i think the biggest number one concern would be, or not concern, sorry, but to surround yourself with just positive people, good people, surround yourself with a strong uh, network of supportive people that can be there for you once that person is gone from your life. Yeah. And also understanding that these things do take time. It's not like you read that checklist ABC and in a week it's, it's good to go. Sometimes these things take years and years to 
to fully get over and sometimes a heartbreak takes another relationship um, for you to get over it or for you to self-explore and start to do new things and new hobbies and eventually realize that the sun is still going to rise tomorrow morning um, and that life will go on. And also what I found so interesting about heartbreak is even after years and years and years, there's still sometimes situations that may remind you of the heartbreak. But I feel like as you get over it, you start to look back at those things as more of a learning experience rather than an extreme moment of, of sadness. No, that, that's that's a very good point. And I think I've been realizing that I'm someone who, I mean, I have a podcast that has conversations. I'm someone who just needs to talk about the situation and that's how I get over it. And I can get over it, you know, in a quick amount of time. But some people need a much longer time to deal with those emotions where some people need a shorter amount of time. So it's kind of just respecting that other person and being like, hey, if you need more time, take the more time you need. And when you're ready, let's talk kind of. Yeah. And I, and also to recognize that these things can come and go in waves. You could have two or three days where you're feeling great about it and that you're starting to get over it and then the next two three days happen and you know you feel like you're at rock bottom and that's okay to have that um, almost like that graph going up and down because you know the, these things are difficult when you invest your emotional time and energy into something and then it fails uh, there is a fairly large grieving process that comes with it i definitely agree and i definitely think uh our boy peter there is going to go through some heartbreak <laughs> yes uh, i would like to welcome to the show eli brown eli is the founder of shine the light on which is a clothing company designed to raise awareness for mental health uh, shine the light on uses thought-provoking designs aimed at sparking conversations and building community including designs with the phrase Normal is boring. The things that make me different make me and rather be in bed. Shine the Light On can be found in over 1,000 stores across Canada and the U.S. with more to be available in the Europe and Australian market. And I think you also mentioned uh, Asia as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also visit their website, www.shinethelighton.com. Eli, once again, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. The question I wanted to ask, and I was like going through your interviews, I was going through all the things you've released. Why clothing? So I chose clothing because it's a great way to to communicate a message, something that everybody wears and that it's something that people are able to express how they feel. Um, I read a great study on, on how they took an art smock and they put it on 20 different people. They told half the group it was a doctor's uh, like outfit and they told the other half the people that it was um, like just a standard art smock. And they studied the people and they studied how their happiness and productivity changed because of the clothing that they were wearing. So I felt like it was a great way to get people to share their stories. But also, uh, one of the most important reasons behind why I chose clothing was because for so many years, I felt alone. And I felt like I was struggling alone and that no one out there was able to understand what I was going through. And I thought that if I put my, my designs on clothing and someone was struggling and they walked by a store, they walked by someone wearing it on the streets, that it would be that quick reminder that someone else knows what they're going through and that they're not alone in their struggles. No, that's a good point. And something I find very commendable in your journey is your acceptance in being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. uh, you're very open with the path that kind of led to where you are today. And that's really something special that not everyone can possess. Like the world tends to look at vulnerability as a weakness when in actuality, I think it's the complete opposite. You know, being vulnerable is one of the, I believe, strongest things you can do and for people who may be in a situation in which they feel that they are alone and are unable to truly share how they feel, to see someone in your position be vulnerable is that beacon that says, if he can do it, I can. And it's 
as you say, it's okay not to be okay. So it's important to show, and you even mentioned in another interview, your story isn't unique, that these are much more, these like feelings that you're having and the way you're seeing the world are much more common than you may think. And I think that helps people realize I'm not alone. Yeah, I think it's it's extremely important to understand that how I feel or what I've ever said during an interview isn't unique in any way, that there are millions and millions of people around the world who feel this way. But there are so many people who feel like they can't express it out of fear of how they'd be judged by others or friends that they may lose because of coming forwards and, and sharing how they feel. But these are emotions that um, aren't unique just to me. This is something that everybody feels on or can feel on a daily basis. And I feel like the vulnerability of, of coming forwards and sharing with people around you uh, gives you the ability to create really uh, sustainable and compassionate relationships with the people around you. And then another thing you often talk about is rejection, whether it be your first clothing brand, heads up and thumbs up, not hitting the mark, being accepted by seven of the 500 stores you initially tried to get shine the light on in, um, you know, among the many other obviously rejections you get as an entrepreneur. How have you been able to balance being vulnerable and also dealing with rejection? So I, I try to separate those two things. When it comes to vulnerability, I I look at that much more in terms of the relationships that I have with the people around me and opening myself up to love and to compassion and really creating great authentic relationships. And rejection on the other side, I kind of look at more as just something that happens. And if there was no rejection in the world, everyone would be at the, at the top of their game or everyone would be achieving everything that they ever dreamed of. And it's just not possible. And what I've learned from rejection is that it's okay. And that generally through rejection, and it may take some time to, to feel this way, is I find I learn way more from rejection than I do from success. Because when I succeed at something, kind of just pat myself on the back and say, great job, and I move forwards. And I don't analyze um, or think about why I succeeded versus when I fail or when I get rejected, I sit and I think, I'm like, okay, well, why didn't this store pick up that product or why didn't I win this tennis match? And through those mini lessons and micro failures, I'm able to learn so much more about myself and what I need to do to continue to progress myself as a on a personal level or from a entrepreneurial level. Yeah, failure is important. I think mm -hmm. it really because it gives you a chance to self-analyze, as you said, and figure out ways to not fail again. But definitely, if you're on a journey, you need to fail a lot. You're probably going to fail 100 times more than you're going to succeed. But that is part of that journey. And that's part of what makes you who you are as a human. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, even when I was starting uh, my business and getting rejected by all those stores, it, it gave me time to think, okay, well, what didn't they like about this, uh, the clothing? Do I need more colors? Do I need more styles? Do I need to change my sizing or my styles? And it got me thinking, about all these different things that I wouldn't have thought about if everyone just said yes. Because I would just be like, wow, everyone likes it. Okay, we're just going to keep keep pushing forwards. And even from a, a life perspective, uh, from my failures in life, like I've learned so much more through that than I ever did through my successes. Yeah, and I like the fact that when you're talking about starting up the clothing brand is like you went to these stores and you asked them like what sells? You know, what kind of fabric sells well? What are people buying? And I think that's also an important part on a journey is to do the work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not going to come easy. You have to put in the time. And yeah, if you fail along the way, at least you know if you're good in your own self-being that you're like I put in a ton of work 
it didn't work out this time, but that doesn't mean it's not going to work out the next time. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that's one of the biggest reasons why people do fail is just because they're afraid to put in the amount of work that's needed to succeed. Very true. Um, listeners, if you'd like to connect more with Eli and his clothing label, Shine the Light On, you can do so by heading over to their Instagram and Facebook at Shine the Light On, or the website is www.shinethelighton.com, or by following Eli's personal Instagram at Eli B-R-O-W. And as always, those links will also be included in the description of this episode. Eli, before we jump into our next story, Uncle Tetsu's Japanese cheesecake, better in Toronto or better in Tokyo? I haven't really been to either one. Oh man, that was like, I was like, this is a huge thing in Toronto. I'm going to see if he's into it. So every time I go by it in Toronto, there's a line around the block. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll go back or like, maybe I'll wait. It must take like an hour and a half to get to the front of it. Oh man. So is it is it on the bucket list at least? It's, it's, on, it's on the list. I'm just waiting for that perfect time, but I'm starting to realize that there probably won't be a perfect time, that I'm just going to have to wait in the hour and a half line one day. <laughs> I had to go for it. All right, well, let's jump into story number two. This is from University of Rochester News Center. Teenagers' ability to describe negative emotions protects against depression. A new study published in the journal Emotion came to the conclusion that teenagers who could describe their negative emotions in precise and nuanced ways are better protected against depression than their peers who are unable to do so. The study used the term negative emotion differentiation, or NED, which is the ability to make fine-grained distinctions between negative emotions and apply precise labels. Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Rochester, Lisa Starr, states, Adolescents who use more granular terms such as I feel annoyed, or I feel frustrated, or I feel ashamed, instead of simply saying, I feel bad, are better protected against developing increased depressive symptoms after experiencing a stressful life event. Starr continues, Emotions convey a lot of information. They communicate information about the person's motivational state, level of arousal, emotional valiance, and appraisals of the threatening experience. A person has to integrate all that information to figure out, am I feeling irritated or am I feeling angry, embarrassed, or some other emotion? Once you know that information, you can use it to help determine the best course of action. It's going to help me predict how my emotions experience will unfold and how I can regulate those emotions to make myself feel better. The team recruited 233 participants with an average age of nearly 16 and conducted diagnostic interviews to evaluate to evaluate the participants for depression. The teenagers then reported the emotions four times daily over a period of seven days. 18 months later, follow-up interviews were conducted from 193 of the initial 233 participants. As mentioned above, researchers found that those who are poor at differentiating their negative emotions are more susceptible to depressive symptoms following stressful life events. And those who display high NED are better at managing the emotional and behavioral aftermath of being exposed to stress thereby reducing the likelihood of having negative emotions escalate into a clinically significant depression over time. Eli, why do you believe teenagers struggle at a much higher rate to properly communicate how they may be feeling? I think one of the biggest reasons is that never, no one's ever really taught how to communicate how they're feeling. Like I think like when I, I'm looking back at, at what I learned in school or at camps or wherever I was, that was one of, like we never learned about that. And we kind of just learned how to describe ourselves as, I had a good day or I had a bad day or an okay day and never to really go into depth of why it was a good day, bad day or an okay day. And that also happened in how we described ourselves like, and, and how we were feeling. I, I really think that we just never learned the proper way to describe how we're feeling. I also think another way is there's a lot of people who, and even myself when I was younger, afraid to really go into depth about how I was feeling because I didn't feel like anyone else would understand or 
that they're going through what I was going through. Um, so I kind of think like those two reasons are, are some of the you know, main contributors to why youth have a difficult time going into depth about how they're feeling. I know in my experience, going back to heartbreak, for me personally, I just didn't know the words to describe those feelings. Like the first time I went through heartbreak, I handled it in the worst possible way. Like, I don't re- I don't regret any of that because as we talked about failures, I think failures are good. I don't regret any of that. I definitely would have liked to, you know, do things different. I know that's kind of counterintuitive, but I don't regret any of it because I just didn't know how to describe myself. You know, love, as we talked about, is one of the strongest drives that the human being can deal with. When going through that heartbreak, I was in love and then I had heartbreak and I was like, well, this is the first time I'm experiencing like romantic love and the first time I'm experiencing heartbreak. I have no idea, first off, how I'm supposed to feel with these emotions. And then second off, how I'm supposed to describe what I'm feeling. And I think that's something that can be very common among teenagers, adolescents, that they're having these feelings for the first time in their life because you talk about as a child, there's that childhood innocence. Everything is good. Everything is great. You're happy from everything. You're very optimistic. And as you become a teenager, you start to get these emotions. You start going through puberty. The chemicals in your body change who you are you start understanding there's a lot more feelings than just happiness and anger and sadness. And you're like, I don't know how to describe these feelings. And then you get a case of, yeah, you know, you're going to class, you're going to camps, and no one's telling you that, oh, yeah, you're sad because you miss that person and you're insecure because what if you can't find that someone like that again who can fill that hole? So I think that at least from my personal experience, is why I think adolescents tend to have much more mental health issues at a younger age just because they don't know how to really describe what's going on. Yeah, and I think they're able to describe it from a very surface level point of view of just, oh, I had it, I'm feeling happy or I'm feeling sad. And uh, until I feel like until people are able to really go into depth of what are behind those feelings that they won't be able to get the help or the support that they need in order to overcome whatever feeling that they're currently have kind of what you said how you know my you know my situation isn't unique i do believe like i think everyone is unique in the sense on the situation may be same, but how you look at it and how it impacts you is completely different. So as we mm-hmm. talked about in that first story, like a solution for someone may be ABC, but for the next person, it may be CDF. So like you're kind of unique in how you handle a situation. So it's tough to be, you know, to give a class to someone, to give a class to a group of kids and be like, hey, are you mad? Well, let's dive deeper into that. I think, you know, from kind of what I've experienced, I think it's better to do more of a, you know, smaller group one on one. Hey, you're mad. Let's talk about why you are mad, not all of you. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that approach. And I remember just kind of even thinking about when I was when I was going through my struggles and when I was receiving help for it. The, the beginning parts of my sessions were much more of like, oh, I had a good day or I was feeling angry or I was feeling sad. And the person would say, okay, well, what's, why are you feeling sad? And started to dig deeper and deeper into what led me to that emotion. And it also provided me with a great way to, to work through my problems and to really be able to analyze why I was feeling that specific way. Yeah, just because sometimes a lot of the times you think you're sad about one thing, but really it's something that happened six months before that kind of triggered that sad response or that happy response. What do you think the thing for you that like switch from I'm sad to 
this is a more in-depth response to why I'm sad? Like, was it just talking it out? Yeah, for me, it was talking it out and someone being there saying, okay, well, what's under that emotion? Why are you feeling that way? Is it something that happened today? Is it something that happened a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? And just having that conversation with someone really gave me the ability to take, you know, a word like sad and blow it up into you know, a hundred different conversations of why I was feeling that way that day. And then you had mentioned in an interview through Authority Magazine on mental health services in schools uh, that counselors often suggest that the struggles of mental health are, quote, typical of a student and they just need to distress. Uh, with one in three youth suffering from mental health related issues, how do we educate parents and people of authority and how to speak to these kids when they are struggling? I guess best, in my opinion, one of the best things parents can do or teachers or school principals can do is to provide an environment where someone could come forwards, share how they're feeling or if they're struggling and not have any judgment or resentment towards that person. It really has to be a clear line of communication between the authority figure or the parent and the child. And when there is this mutual connection and understanding. I really believe that youth will feel more comfortable coming forwards and sharing how they feel. And yeah, you, t you t mentioned the safe environment. You have been working with the city of Toronto to build affordable housing for youth impacted by mental health and addiction. Outside of providing that safe environment, and this is for the youth specifically, what other tools can we, you know, these teenagers use to help them handle situations involving mental health addiction in a healthy and productive manner? So one of the, the best things that I did was create a support system around me because a lot of these things are extremely difficult to go through regardless of what age you are. And to go through this alone is awful and it's really tough and there's a really low chance of success. When you almost have a team behind you and around you, you're able, or at least in my opinion, you're able to create a system where you can actually get better and actually reach out for support and get the help that's needed. So I definitely think kind of putting that support system around you if you're struggling as a kid is fantastic. I think speaking to people about it as well can also really help uh, just because it kind of gets rid of that feeling of, oh, I'm alone, no one else knows what I'm going through. Because I can almost guarantee that if a kid's listening to this and they're struggling and they speak to one of their friends about it, the friend is probably gonna say, wow, I know exactly how you feel I've felt like this many times before. How do you get to that point though where you feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable? So it definitely takes time. Uh, initially when I was sharing my story or reaching out for help, it started with one person who I felt extremely comfortable with. And as I shared it with that person, I kind of realized, well, nothing went wrong. They accepted what I said they're, and they're, they're helping me and they're supporting me. It then gave me the confidence to reach out to another person and, and share. And before I knew it, I started to feel more and more comfortable sharing my truth. Yeah, find good people. Like there's good and bad people in the world. Go where the good people are. And, you know, I think that's going to be very, very helpful to not only, you know, your emotional health, but your spiritual health and your physical health to just be surrounded by good people. Yeah. I mean, even going back to the the, the fish article, it's like, that's, that's like a big part of that article. It's like you surround yourself with people that you like and that you enjoy being around. You're going to have a better life and a happier life. Before we move on, any final words to teenagers out there who may be struggling? Yeah. I think the best thing, if you're struggling out there to reach out for support, build that support system, 
because going along this journey alone is really difficult and really tough. And when you have other people there to support you and help guide you through it, it really helps and makes the world a difference. All right, Eli, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the day? Ready to go. All right, this is from the Economic and Political Weekly. Let's not call things crazy. Language and Portrayal of Mental Illness Following the release of M. Night Shyamalan's Split, the movie came under fire for the inaccurate portrayal of the psychological condition known as Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID, a disorder characterized by the presence of two or more distinct personalities which was represented by James McAvoy's character Kevin. Split was criticized for perpetuating the myth that persons with mental health conditions are predis predisposed to violent and erratic behavior and lack empathy towards their victims. Saloni DeWalker, a research assistant at the Department of Psychology of Monk Pragushala, who authors the article, states in his thesis point, partly due to a climate of political correctness, media representation and words have constructed our perception our perceptions regarding the mentally ill. In more detail, DeWalker states, language is political. Words do not exist in a vacuum but operate within cycles psychosocial, the relationship between how an individual relates to others in a social setting, frameworks that help construct our experiences of the world. The way we use them establishes and persuades perceptions about various social groups. To illustrate historically eugenics, the process of controlled breeding to increase desirable traits, was propagated as a form of manually engineered social Darwinism. It sought to segregate, institutionalize, and force sterilize those deemed feeble-minded or mentally deficient. That was done based not on accurate science, but persuasive labels. Literature on the subject alludes to the fear that mental degenerates would outpopulate the white upper middle class Protestant groups to which eugenicists tended to belong. Basically, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Idiocracy. Basically, that's what they're fearful yeah. of. Uh, to further illustrate his thesis, DeWalker compares language represented in the Lunacy Act of 1858 and the Mental Health Care Act passed April of 2017. The Lunacy Act was originally passed with the objective of segregating lunatics away from the society for the safety of neighbors. Eventually, when the Mental Health Healthcare Act passed, it updated the terminology from nursing home asylum, lunatic, and criminal lunatic from the 1858 Act to psychiatric hospital, mentally ill person, and mentally ill prisoner. A notable shift towards better awareness of mental health conditions and the naming of the mentally ill. In continuation of his comparison, DeWalker says, words evolved after gaining regressive and exclusionary connotations. For instance, the phrase mentally retarded was considered a politically correct improvement over imbecile, idiot, and moron, which were originally descriptors for degrees of intellectual disability in, in intelligence tests until the 1960s. Currently, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders has replaced mental retardation with intellectual disability. Harvard psycholinguist Steven Pinker, who coined the phrase euphemism treadmill in which a word acquires new connotations by virtue of their association with a concept already deemed a certain way, stated, a name becomes colored by the concept. The concept does not become freshened by the name. The implication being that new words describing old concepts will not become free from negative perceptions, but that the new words will soon be deemed to hold a similar meaning as the word before it had. So what does DeWalker theorize as a solution to this issue? Neurodiversity. Neurodiversity is the idea that certain neurological conditions such as dyslexia, ADHD, and, and autism are natural variations in the human genome and should not be treated as psychological abnormalities. So, in the case of M. Night Shyamalan's split and DID, instead of treating the mental illness as a negative, those conditions under neurodiversity would instead be treated as a form of resilience in the aftermath of trauma. A symptom of splitting personalities in the face of threat might be evidence of the brain's persistence and adapting to survive. Basically taking something that has been portrayed as a negative in the media and instead turning it into a quote-unquote 
superpower. Eli, two questions here. First, do you agree with DeWalker's thesis of media representation and our choice of words constructing our current perception of the mentally ill? And second, doing the research you felt comfortable doing, is neurodiversity a viable option to help reduce the stigma on mental health? Yes. First, there's a lot to unpack in, in that article. Like, I feel like I tried to like summarize 10, it the best I could. I thought yeah, I did a I feel good like job. There's like ten or fifteen different topics <laughs> in there, but they're they're all great and they're really all all thought provoking. I guess the the first one is is around the language. I think that regardless of what we call things, if there's still a negative connotation around that thing, it just will take a, more time for that new word to to become outdated and to become offensive. I feel like it's really hard to, if the connotation of the word always remains the same, that I feel like regardless of what we call it, it it's just bound to eventually happen where that word all of a sudden starts to become offensive and rude to the people who are struggling with whatever difficulty the word is with. Do you think it's possible to change the connotation of a word over time? Yes, I think that, and it's almost like what you said about uh, you know, the words and the stigma around mental health. I, I definitely do think that there is a way to, to correct the connotation around the word. I think as more people come forward and share their story and share their truth and realize that there's millions and millions of people around the world who are struggling with the same thing, people may no longer start to look at that word or that thing or that disease in a, in a negative way because everyone will know someone who is struggling with it. That's that's actually a very good point that I've never really thought about, because I've always seen it as, like, you take a word, like, you know, we just had it on a recent episode, we talked about the NBA changing their owners to governors, but the connotation is still there of someone owning a team and, you know, having, you know, the league being majority people of color. But, you know, that's a good point. If you start having people more accepting of the word, like, you know, I mentioned the N-word, how people use it in a racist connotation, but there's also people using it as a point of power. Like we own this word. And I think if more people are in that jumping on that bandwagon on, it's okay to, you know, have, as they mentioned, um, dyslexia or something like that. That's a good word for to describe this. We feel comfortable. I think also the people that the words are describing also have to be comfortable with the word. Yeah. And I think that over time, certain things start to destigmatize as people share more and more about them people may realize that having dyslexia isn't really the end of the world or that people may realize that there's a lot of people out there who do struggle with dyslexia and struggle with reading and maybe the connotation of the word over time starts to just become another thing of oh this guy has brown hair you know it, it i think these things do take time to to develop and to, to unfold as, as people become more and more aware of the others out there struggling with all these difficulties. I think it's, I think it's more important to change. I think connotation and definition are kind of different. I think it's like more important to change the definition. Like they talked about dyslexia in this article on how you just see patterns different. Like what's mm -hmm. wrong with that? It's like speaking another language. There's nothing wrong with that. But for some reason, we're like, oh, this is a mental disorder. Yeah. And I think it just comes down to changing the definition of what these words mean is the best way to change the connotation. Yeah, and also realizing, like, who cares if someone has dyslexia? I mean, obviously, like, I, I mean, if it was like a teacher or a parent, like, I understand the care and love and stuff like that. But like, someone has it, like, it doesn't, doesn't matter doesn't make them really that different. They just have a tough time reading. I think when it comes to words, I 
you know, people don't really understand the influence that you know, media has on our everyday life, you know, like we consume so much media. I think there was this, I have to um, add in what the study is, but we consume like 11 hours of media a day or somehow connected to the media, whatever for 11 hours, whether that just be listening to music or watching a TV show or reading a book, almost half the day you're connected to some media source telling some narrative and you get influenced by that. There's no way you mm -hmm. can't be. So when you get like words like this, you're influenced by what the media perceives them to be. In this case of the M. Night Shyamalan movie Split, that's how people probably think DID is defined. Yeah, and I think it's difficult also because it was a movie and obviously they're going to over-exaggerate a lot of things and try to make it as as interesting and thought-provoking as possible. But you know, I do see the side where it's like, okay, well, if that's the only movie out there that sh shows that type of disorder, that's may become people's perception of someone who has split personality. And that's one of the only movies I've ever seen it in. But yeah, it's one of those things where if a movie that Split was a very popular movie. If that becomes mainstream, people are like, oh yeah, I guess that makes sense because I'm not going to check in on it. Yeah. And, and I would hope though that if someone saw that movie and thought that's what that disorder mm -hmm. was in everyone, that they would maybe do a little bit of research before they, they formed an opinion. And I think that's one of the bigger issues with media is we see something and we're so quick to believe it and so adapt, uh, quick to adapt it into our everyday lives and thinking without actually doing any fact checking into it of does this make sense is this true are there other people with other opinions on this and then you know kind of creating the thought process around it and your opinion around it so many people are just quick to see something on tv or read an article or hear someone say something and just kind of hop on the bandwagon i 100 percent agree with you that's something i talk about a lot on this show and one of the reasons I want to be more um, accountable to what I'm putting out in the world, because some people don't always have the time. And you know, I understand it. You know, sometimes you don't have the time to do all this extra research. So you depend on your sources of media to be trustworthy. And that's why I want to put out a trustworthy product. But yeah, everyone's not as good intentioned as I may be, you do have to hold yourself accountable to the media you are consuming. I think that is important. Yeah, definitely. But um, I think it's really important to always double check things yeah. mm -hmm. and to really think about things before a full opinion is, is, um, is created. Um, because yeah, like that's Split, I think, is the only movie I've ever seen where it showed that type of disorder. And if I didn't educate myself further on it, I mean, maybe I could think that that's what it would be like in the majority of people who have it. Yeah, and I think it's important that we do, in a way, get more mental health illnesses in movies, but in a way that this is the illness. Like we had a guest on, Noah Kazi, who talked about, I want a gay character that his sexuality to be like the fourth most interesting thing about him. Mm -hmm. Not the, not the primary yeah. thing. That they and I think if we it. did that with mental health as well, being like, Hey, you know, this guy has depression, this guy has anxiety, but that's not the thing that defines him. I think we can have a much positive, much more positive outlook on the stigma of mental health and media. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, I, I am hoping that people aren't relying on the movies to be the cure. I think that's part of it. It's one of the many thousands of things I think we need to do in order to 
to create a better environment and a better community for for where we're living. Um, but I think so much of it comes from the conversation and talking to one another and sharing our struggles and being vulnerable with people. You start to realize that we're really not that different from one another. Yeah, and that's something like I found. Like I had gone on a um, like a documentary road trip where I lived on my car for three months and I interviewed people. And the whole idea was that this guy who was a UFO hunter in Las Vegas and this person who lives in Portland and does tattoos, they may seem like two totally different people, but they're really a lot more similar than you may think. And it's just connecting with those people and, and asking questions and, and sharing what you've gone through or what you want to do to, to really create the, those authentic relationships and really realize we're not that different from one another. As someone who you've created mental health or you've built a career off of having a conversation about mental health, if that's correct, how would you want mental health to be portrayed in the media, politics, kind of everyday life? What would be the ideal or is there an ideal way of talking about it? I wish that people would be able to talk about it like almost like hair color, like where it just didn't matter and that people were okay with some people having black hair, some people having blonde hair, some people having green hair. Like It's okay to be different and it's okay to struggle and it's okay not to be okay. And I think that would be one of the one of the primary things that I would hope that is accomplished through raising awareness for mental health, that it is okay to struggle and that you're not alone and that there's other people out there who know exactly what you're going through and that people shouldn't be treated differently based off of how they're emotionally feeling. I strongly agree with that. Well, all right, Eli, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective about some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful discussion. Once again, listeners, you can connect with Eli and his clothing label, Shine the Light On, by heading over to their official Instagram and Facebook, at Shine the Light On, their official website, www.shinethelighton.com, or by following Eli's personal Instagram, at EliBRO. W. Eli, based on the 25-year journey you've been on, the people you've met, the stories you've heard, do we always need to be the hero of our own story? I don't think so. I think it's, it's important to surround yourself with a variety of people that you view as heroes or as mentors, as I, I really like to call them, as people who will be able to help you guide you through life and people that you can always lean on for support. But I'm also a firm believer that you should be your own biggest fan and that there's nothing wrong with giving yourself a lot of admiration and love for yourself because at the end of the day, you're with yourself more than you are with anybody else. And I think it's really important to view yourself as a hero or a mentor and to really love yourself and, and be your own biggest fan. There's this stigma that, especially among the male community, that you always need to be, everything always needs to be okay. And you always, you can't be this um, pedestal of weakness, so to say, quotations on that. So I think it's important to, yeah, hear people in a position you are say, yeah, you don't always need to be the hero. Yeah, it, it's it's okay to struggle. Yeah, it's okay sometimes to struggle. It's okay sometimes to rely on other people to be the hero of your story. I think at the end of the day, yeah, obviously you want to be the hero that saves the day, but that's not always possible. We're not living in a comic book. We're not living in a movie. This is real life and you're going to struggle and that's okay. Yeah, 100%. And some of the people that I look up to most are people who have openly shared their struggles and what came from it. And I also believe that our greatest challenges in life can become our greatest successes. And sometimes a person who struggles a lot ends up achieving a lot of success personally and in a, in a career because struggles are 
what really builds the foundation of resiliency and drive and gives people the opportunity to understand what it means to achieve and to overcome something. So really, there is nothing wrong with the with struggling and not to not to be okay. And I really look up to people who are able to overcome challenges and obstacles in life. As sp- speaking of people who you know you can look up to, I'm a huge Selena Gomez fan. So to hear you're inspired by Selena Gomez is that's that's really cool to hear because I think she's yeah. done a lot of very good things for the stigma of mental health. Yeah, definitely. And that's someone who she struggled physically uh, with the disease. She's struggled emotionally with mental health and she's achieving unbelievable things. So you're, you know, you're seeing someone who is using their greatest challenges in life and difficulties and turning it into inspiration for others. Yeah, no, Eli, well, I, th- I very much appreciate you having on having you on the show and being able to talk about mental health. And like, that's, you know, something I've always been curious in and I've touched here and there, but to have someone who has your platform to say, yeah, it's okay to not be okay. Your problems aren't unique. There's more people out there in the world that are just like you. There's a community out there. I think it's really important. I'm really happy that people like you exist in our world. Thank you. It really means a lot to me. And thank you so much for having me today to have this conversation. I think it's so important to continue to have it. And hopefully you know, the listeners are able to now share their truth and really build those authentic relationships with the people around them. Yeah. And like something I talk about all the time is a conversation, a productive conversation at that is such an important piece in solving anything. I think if you can sit down and have a productive conversation, you can solve every problem that's in the world, but not everyone's always coming to the table productively. So it is tough, but I think having conversations like this is vital to say, yeah, this is okay to talk about. This was, we talked about some deep things. We shared some good experiences and this was just a fun conversation and it can be like, that's the important thing. Like talking about mental health can be something you can talk about over breakfast or, you know, before a movie, like these are things that it's, it's always interesting to me why people don't talk about it more because everyone does struggle with something. Yeah, exactly. And it's something that's completely normal and a lot of people go through it. So there's nothing wrong with talking about it and sharing your struggles, but also your strengths. And people go through this on a daily basis. People understand what you're going through because they've been there as well. So I think the more we talk about it, the more um, there becomes less and less of a stigma around it. And, and hopefully we have a happier and happier community. Oh, I appreciate the conversation, Eli. Uh, and as always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Eli, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to reach out to the show with a strange local news story, or if you just want to share some of your own comments, you can do so at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com. Eli, it is tradition around here for the guests to close out the show, so I will hand the floor over to you. Whatever you think is right to close out this episode, the floor is yours. Thank you. And thank you so much again for having me today. It's been so great just talking to you about this stuff and just showing how normal it is to have a conversation and how it doesn't have to be scary to have in-depth conversations about this, about feelings, emotions, or mental health. So thank you so much for providing that platform for me here today and and sharing this with with your community and the the greater people around you. And uh, the one thing I kind of just want to end it off with is that um, with persistence and will, our, our greatest challenges in life can and will become our greatest successes. I think it's really important because 
everyone's going to struggle and everyone does struggle. And if we really dig deep and continue to push forwards through those things, um, those struggles can become unbelievable successes in our lives. Love that. That is, that is some powerful stuff. Uh, thanks guys for listening to another episode of water cooler talk. Once again, we were joined by Eli Brown of shine the light on, but until next time guys, peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. And we're here, one of my favorite portions of the episode, The Corrections. I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Eli Brown, founder of Shine the Light on Clothing Company. But you are here for corrections, so... Let's jump right into episode 26, Corrections. This is from story number one. The theory of soulmates I had mentioned in story one about the lovesick fish was from, I believe, a Tumblr post. Uh, do, st- do people still use Tumblr out there? I don't, I, don't, I don't know anymore. Anyways, the theory goes as follows. Some people are drawn to one another because their atoms were near each other when the universe was created, and over time, the same atoms keep coming back together. Now, listener, chemistry was one of my weaker subjects in college, in high school, but based on the research I was able to understand, all atoms have positive and negative charges. So maybe there's something there with like the laws of attraction and opposites that has something to do with soulmates. I'm very intrigued by the idea of soulmates and I love any theories and other take on the matter. So please comment where you stand in that conversation. I would love to hear what you think about soulmates and what your theory of soulmates is. All right, and then into our guest introduction, we had just just a little more information about the study Eli had mentioned about the art smocks and the belief of what that coat means in relation to being either, I believe, a doctor or an artist. The study I was able to find with a similar description was led by Professor Adam D. Galinsky of the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, which studied in cloth cognition, which is the effects of clothing on cognitive processes. Uh, The basics of the study mentioned that we think with not just our brains, but also our bodies as well, which also is similar to um, the... Stanford prison experiment in which one group was told they were prisoners and given orange jumpsuits and the other was told they were guards and given guard uniforms. So studies like those mentioned paid a good picture of just how much of our daily existence I think is really important, just how much of our daily existence can be influenced by even the most mundane of things. I think that's a really cool thing to kind of pay attention to in your daily life. All right, in story two, we were on point. Story two, no corrections there. So on to story three. In our final news story, I mentioned the Lunacy Act of 1858 and the Mental Health Care Act of 2017. Both of those acts are specific to India. Uh, Since the author of the article was from India, he used examples from their laws. Also in that story, I mentioned dyslexia as a mental disorder. Uh, But just to be as clear as possible on the correct terminology, dyslexia is considered a a learning disorder. And then in that story, I also mentioned the study about Americans spending 11 hours a day consuming media. That comes from Nielsen's first quarter report of 2018 on U.S. media consumption. The medias that they include in that are TV, DVDs, radio, phone usage, internet, and video games. Uh, But those medias do not include print formats, 
such as books or magazines. The first quarter report of 2019 that just came out states that the consumption of media by Americans has risen by almost 20 minutes. So now I think it's around 11 hours and 27 minutes. And then finally, we mentioned the movie Split and its commercial success. Split made $278.5 million on a budget of only $9 million and was labeled both a commercial and financial success for M. Night Shyamalan. Alright, that is the corrections for episode 26, Vulnerability with Eli Brown. Once again, thank you for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk and hanging around for the corrections section of this episode. If you happen to stumble across a correction we missed, email us at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com and I will make sure to make that change. But anyways, that's your corrections. That's your episode. So get out of here!